Welcome to Black Fashion History, the podcast that celebrates the contributions of Black people all around the world to the fashion industry. It's Black History, but make it fashion. And I'm your host, Taniqua Russ. Hi, everyone. Today, we have a special guest. I am so excited to highlight the career and accomplishments of Adrian Jones. Professor Adrian Jones holds the honor of being the first black woman to achieve full-time tenured status at Pratt Institute while teaching in the fashion design department for over 25 years. And in 2014, Adrian Jones created and co-curated the landmark exhibition Black Dress, which honors black designers and addresses the lack of diversity in the fashion industry. She pursued that even further and created the Black Dress Project which includes Black Dress TV, where she interviews Black figures in fashion and tells their stories, much like we do here at Black Fashion History. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Professor Adrienne Jones. Yeah, so I just want to get started with kind of learning a little bit about uh, where are you from and then what initially attracted you to uh, starting a career in fashion? I am a New Yorker through and through, born and raised. Uh, What started me? My mother was a muse for one of her very dear friends, Penny Hunter, who had a atelier in Harlem. Mm -hmm. And uh, she ever seen. And when she died, she left me her sewing machine. Now, my background is in fine arts. I, I paint. I did photography for many years. And so when I saw this sewing machine, and I'm also a gadget girl. Mm-hmm. So learning to use the machine, I actually took the machine apart. <laughs> I took a screwdriver to it so I could figure out how it worked. And um, then just started making my own clothes. Uh, high school, I had applied to many schools, mostly for, for psychology. I've always been interested in the way the brain works or doesn't work and, and why that happens. And one of my teachers also made me apply to uh, Brown University as an English major. She felt like I was one of the best English students she had ever had. Got accepted to a lot of different schools, wasn't really thrilled about anything. And my guidance counselor said, well, what do you love to do? And at the time, I was sewing. And I said, oh, well, I love to sew and dance. And she said, well, that's it. You're going to FIT. <laughs> and quite honestly, I didn't know what FIT was. I was like, you're sending me to a school to be a physical ed teacher? I wasn't sure. So that's where it came from. I got accepted. I went in, loved it. And I feel like if you're an artist, you can kind of pick and choose what part of the umbrella that you want to be under. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was just a a very easy switch from painting to fashion. So is painting something that you are still doing, even though now you kind of, you know, started at FIT, started in this fashion area? Did you leave painting behind or did you try to kind of balance both art forms? 
I did leave it behind for a little while, but now I even paint the clothes that I design. Mm -hmm. So it's still there. And I always believe if it's, if you've cultivated it, it will never leave you. So you can tap into it at any time. So after FIT, what was the next step in your career? You graduated. Now what? (laughs) Graduated, went to work. I was excited about going to work in the industry. I thought my goal was to come out and just create beautiful clothes for everyone. And it didn't really happen that way. I did create beautiful clothes. I had a difficult time getting them where I wanted to be. Coming fresh out of school, I was the designer. I was the sample hand. I was I was my own business person. I was the delivery guy. You know, I was everything. And I was still working, but loving what I did. So this was in, this was in the early 80s. And it was hard for a Black designer to really get their name out there. And I didn't recognize that. So I just you know, kept going to little boutiques in the Soho area and, you know, all over. At the time, Bergdorf Goodman had a designer day. Andre Bendel had a designer day. Fiorucci had designer day. So you just went and, you know, hopefully they loved your stuff and took you on. And it was never really a situation where they didn't love what I was doing. Mm -hmm. They didn't love that I was Black. Can you explain a little bit about Designer Day for people who may not understand what that is? Well, since it doesn't happen anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And two of those stores are no longer in existence. And it was a day that, if I remember, some new designers, a lot of people were just out of school. We were excited about what we were doing. And so it was new designers who got the opportunity to bring their stuff up to the stores and show what they were doing to some of the buyers. So it was a very exciting time to be in fashion. But like I said, it didn't always work out for designers of color. So what are some of the like obstacles you faced during that time as a designer of color. So I know the main thing is, you know, people were hesitant to bring on, you know, black designers, but what are some of the other experiences you've had? Well, I wasn't with the agent. I didn't have anybody representing me. So I was literally going out on my own. One of my favorite stories, but not my favorite situation I had a friend of my mom, my mom's, no, it was a friend. Her mom always wore my clothes. She was this beautiful Jewish woman. And she would always say, I don't understand why your your clothes aren't in stores. And, you know, when you're going through it, it's, it's hard to sit down and explain to people who are outside of the situation why it's actually going on, because it just doesn't sound like it makes sense. Like talking about clothes, clothes, you know, beautiful clothes. So why is this a situation? So we talked and I was real honest about what was going on. And so she said, make an appointment for the next designer day at Bergdorf. She says, I'm going to go with you. And I said, okay, great. But let's not tell the buyer 
who mm-hmm. I am. Let's let's just let her think either you're the designer, you're the rep for the designer, but don't don't say who I am. So we got there at the time. I had just not just started working. I I do my specialty is in leather and suede and fur. And at the time I was doing these hand knit leather and suede sweaters. So we go up there. I probably had about 10 pieces and the woman looks at them and she's blown away. She's like, these are the most beautiful pieces I've ever seen. We're going to have to figure something out. And she goes back to get an invoice to write up which sweaters, which sweaters she wanted to take. And when she comes back, my friend said to me, she says, this is great. This is really going to happen. And so when the woman comes back, when the buyer comes back, she says, oh, by the way, she says, are you the designer? She says this to my friend. And she completely forgets (laughs) the conversation we had had. And she says, oh, no, by the way, this is the designer, Adrian Jones. And I saw the look on her face and I knew it was over. And she says, well, hmm. I don't really know how we're going to display these. And she just started going through a series of reasons why this was not going to work. And just that quickly, we watched the order just disappear. So it was a regular experience for me, but for my friend, she was really shook by it Mm -hmm. and very, very upset and disappointed. Yeah, as you stated before, sometimes if that's not your experience or you're on the outside looking in, it's hard for you to grasp the why, the why behind that. Even if it is your experience, sometimes it's hard to grasp, but it's become normal. So that's really unfortunate that that, you know, has been you know, what you work up against as you were coming out as a designer. So having those things and those obstacles before you, you know, what did you decide to do? You know, did you continue trying to push? I know there's some designers, some Black designers who decide to go overseas because they're more receptive there. You know, what was your approach to that? I kept going, but what I found is just from events I was going to and people I knew, I developed a, a personal clientele. Mm-hmm. And decided to go that route. A lot of people were like, oh, you should open a store. I never, ever, ever wanted to have my own retail store. I feel like I just didn't have the patience to deal with people like that one-on-one. And I just didn't think it was a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I continued working. And then mm-hmm. also, you know, doing, doing my own things for private clientele. So in addition to designing, I know you also like did some styling, some fashion show production, all of that. You're very well-rounded in the industry. So how did you move from designing into some of these other aspects? Basically through friends. I've been very fortunate throughout my career to meet some really incredible people. And, you know, if, if I had a moment, because again, my background is in fine arts mm-hmm. and I always believed, you know, you could, you could switch from one medium to the next because it's, it's all basically the same, you know, like in painting, I can paint on canvas. I can paint faces. I can paint interior of houses, 
you know, it's all, it's about light, color, design. So people would ask me, oh, are you available to do this? And if I was available, I'd say, yeah. And there were many instances where there were things, experiences I had never done before. And, but I've always had the thought process, what the heck, give it a try. You might, you might like it. Right. That's true. And uh, I guess you did. <laughs> and I did. And I did. So and I found out I was actually better working with people than I thought I was. So you learned something new. I learned something new about self. Yes. So how did you get into um, a career in teaching? Very interesting. I had been working and my godmother had called me. And I'm fortunate enough to have not one, but two amazing godmothers. And we'll get to the other one in a minute. (laughs) And she called me. She was uh, teaching at Pratt Institute at the time. And so she called me and I was a single mom. I had a little boy. And she said, listen, they're looking for somebody. Another professor has to leave the position. They're looking for somebody if you want it, you know, I'm going to recommend you. And I said, okay, great. Here's yet another example. I'm going to step into something that I've never done before. Also, oh, you and, hadn't taught before. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, I knew I was really good at what I did, <laughs> but teaching it, but I was like, okay, let's, if she thinks I can do it, I'm, I'm going in. Who, who else will know? And so I called and they said, yes, we were waiting. The head of the department, she said, yes, we're, we heard about you and gave me the job over the phone. So I was like, okay, great. No fear. And I went to fill out the paperwork. And the chair of the department at the time, she looks up at me, same look as the woman at Bergdorf, like, oh, she's black. And what, oh, she, no. and what she says to me was, registration is next week. And I said, oh, I'm not here to register. I'm, hi, I'm Adrian Jones. We spoke over the phone. And then the full on look came like, this is not who I thought she was. Now, sidebar, this godmother was white. Oh. So they made the assumption that if she was white, you must- I was white. And then there's, and as she said, she's like, oh, but you sound different over the phone. No, I actually do not. And that's how that story began. That's how I came into my being at Pratt. So what were those first couple of years teaching? Like, you've never done this before. This opportunity kind of just, you know, presented itself for you. You stepped out on faith and you took it. So how did you handle like your first attempts in a sense? So my first class was very interesting because I wasn't that much older than some of of my students. And even the first couple of years, everybody would come in and sit down and I'd be sitting down like everybody else. And I would listen to them and they're waiting for the professor to come in, not realizing that it was me. But I was very honest about who I was in my background. And I told people, I said, I'm really good at what I do. I've never taught before. So I'm gonna need your help 
and you telling me what it is that you need in order to get the information. So it was, I would have to say my first couple of years, it was my students who taught me how to teach them. So I would just, you know, they would talk to me and then I would have to reverse it and said, okay, if you're doing this from a point where you've never done it before, mm-hmm. how, how do you get the information to them? And they were very gracious and they were very patient with me. So I was learning as they were learning. So fast forward 20 plus years at Pratt and teaching. Now you're a veteran and given your like your initial experience with the job, you know, how did you how are you able to get to this place where I guess you've become like a respected professor at the institution and then being the first black woman to achieve tenure? It wasn't handed to me on a silver platter. It was a fight. It was a fight. I recognize, and I don't think that's something that has changed. And all we have to do is Hannah Nicole Jones and her situation that here I am teaching. Yes, it was in Brooklyn, in the heart of Brooklyn, but it was an old white male institute. Right. And here I am, this young black woman, but I'm noticing, you know, everybody, and I, w- I was looking in my department specifically, didn't have the skill set that I had. And, you know, they had, you know, they were getting healthcare benefits, all the things that go along with being in higher education, which seemed to be skipping me by. And it actually reached a point where I couldn't, I won't say I was ignoring it. I just didn't really know how to go about navigating it at the time. But a situation arose where they were choosing a new chair of the department. And at that time, I had probably been there about 10 or 11 years. Mm -hmm. I had navigated myself around the campus and the politics. So I had a little inkling of where this was going. And when the powers that be, and this was just in the department, found out that I was running for chair of the department, they put up every kind of roadblock that you could imagine, and a lot that you couldn't imagine, to keep me out of that position. And so in the interim, what they would do is have what they call acting chair. And the outgoing chairperson had recommended me, which Mm -hmm. is normally not an issue. Uh, Whoever they recommend, that's the person that goes in. But during that time, usually whoever gets the acting chair gets the full position. So the roadblock started at that. And they hired this this woman who not only didn't have the skill set, she did not have the education. And I said, okay, but this is just for acting chair. When it came time for the full position, the full-time position, I applied for that. And they instead chose this woman. And the reasoning that they gave was because she had had a higher promotional status than I did. The problem with that was, is I got there before she did. And I hadn't even been given information about promotions or how to go about them. So I waited. I waited until they gave her the the full position 
And then I filed a racial discrimination suit. So I had to, I had to take it there. I had to take it there. And it was, I mean, it it was almost like taking candy from a baby because Mm -hmm. she barely had an associate's degree and I had just, and I had just finished my master's degree. So it was, it was pretty evident Mm -hmm. that, you know, some, some racial shenanigans had, had gone on. So. So after that experience and you following that suit, did you experience any sort of like isolation from your colleagues or I don't want to say black balls, but you know, just that like, we're not going to associate with Adrian anymore. We're not going to talk to her, that kind of thing. Well, the interesting thing was that up until that time, I was I was part time. Mm-hmm. So you really only see people on the days that you're there teaching. And I didn't I didn't do it loudly. I waited till the semester was over, and I actually did not file in Brooklyn. I filed here in Westchester, mm-hmm. and then you know, then of course the summer came. So. It wasn't like a lot of people knew, but what was really interesting and really let me know that people had my back was that the black and brown community at Pratt, once they found out about it, you know, they gave me all the support. Some of it was just verbal. Some of it was information that would be slid under a door in my mailbox or something like that. They really let me know they supported what I was doing and my decision to fight. And then, of course, there were people who were like, well, I remember one woman said to me and she was a black woman. And she says, well, how can you bite the hand that feeds you? And I said, I'm still hungry, (laughs) you know, and I see everybody else getting the benefits of being a full time professor and. I have everything else that they have. Some I had more. And by the time I got my master's, I felt like there was hardly a department on campus that I couldn't successfully teach in. So I felt like I had earned it. Right. Absolutely. And you did. But I had to fight for it. I had to fight for it. And I'm okay with that. Well, and I'm sure that has helped many people after you, you know, that are coming up as like uh, professors or other positions in academia um, as they continue to make strides and make their way. You know, the interesting thing about that is that when you're in that fight, when you're in that struggle, you don't realize that. And even though I had the support, I was really in this fight by myself. Yeah. And as someone else said to me, she said, you know, nobody's going to lose their job over it. And it didn't happen overnight. Pratt actually waited for two years before they even responded. And that happened because I, I, I let it be known to people who I knew would tell that I was coming back to campus with the press. Mm-hmm. And no college, no university wants any negative press whatsoever. Of course. <laughs> so they hurried up and called for a meeting. But Like I said, when you're in that struggle, when you're in that fight, you don't realize the path and the footsteps that you're leaving for others. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until that I was 
that I was in the fight that I found out that after I won that part of it, that I was about to be the first full-time Black female professor on the campus ever. Oh, wow. Which was, which was shocking. And it was, and it was a hard pill to swallow. I still have people who say to me, you know, you should be honored about that. I just felt like, why am I the first? You know, Pratt, Pratt has been in existence for over, well over 125 years. Why am I the first? So I didn't always take it as a, as a star because it, it was a hard fight. It was, it was a hard fight. And I would say at least the first 15 years of my time at Pratt, I felt like I had got the teaching thing down easily. But that fight, you know, but I come from parents who always said anything worth having, you are going to have to fight for. So I, I just hung in there. I just hung in there. Yeah, but I'm sure you never imagined it would come down to this. And we so no, because that's not what you're thinking. You, yeah. You're not thinking that. It's just like how how do I navigate this? How do I make people see the wrongdoing in this? Mm-hmm. So we talked a lot about the obstacles you've had to overcome, and you're obviously a very resilient woman. You know, given how much you fought for your space in, in this industry. But I want to talk about like some of your wins and some of the exciting and rewarding moments of your career. So if you had to pick a moment or a few moments that stand out to you as like the most memorable or where the most joyous for you, what would those be? I've won quite a few awards through the student body. Mm-hmm. And I know hands down 100 percent. Because I've, I've had people ask me when things were going really rough, like, why do you stay? And I stayed because I've had some of the most amazing students who didn't know the fight that I was going through and just supported me and, and thanked me and gave me their accolades on a daily basis just, just for coming in and giving back what I knew. So for like 20 years, I was the faculty advisor for a fashion group called Fashion Society. And this was specifically for freshmen and sophomores because at that time, and it still is, you have to wait until you're a senior to participate in a fashion show. Mm -hmm. So this was an opportunity for them to gleam and shine in their early part of their student career. And also 2017, I won the, what is it called? Oh, Pratt's Award for Outstanding Teacher of the Year. And again, that comes through the students. So those were, those were great moments. And then last and definitely not least, the launching of Black Dress. And that's one of the things I definitely want to touch on is, you know, Black Dress, just the project itself and the exhibition. You know, it's where I guess I kind of first found out who you were. And then also, obviously, like a a predecessor or opportunity that kind of makes my podcast possible, you know, and every other you know, project in this space that kind of highlights, you know, Black people and, you know, their contributions to the fashion industry. 
So what made you start that? Like what clicked in your head? It's like, oh, I've got to do something to celebrate us. Well, it goes back to my time at FIT and my other godmother, amazing black woman, her brand. And she had started the Soul, the Soul Club at FIT long before I got there. It started actually after the assassination of Martin Luther King. And, and originally it was to assist black students with supplies and books that they would need for class. And I want to say it was in the 70s that she started doing uh, the Soul Fashion Show, which went from just being there at FIT to ending up traveling all across the United States. And I was both a model and a designer. And she kept a scrapbook of Black designers. And I always felt like I was well-versed on the, the designers of color who came before me. And it wasn't until she got sick uh, with Alzheimer's and I was cleaning out her apartment and I knew that these, that these scrapbooks existed. And that was the only thing that I wanted was these scrapbooks. And I got them home. There was five of them. And I just sat down and went through them and realized how many designers I did not know about. And not just designers, there were milliners, there were jewelry makers, there, you know, just Black people under the umbrella of fashion. And so I got this idea, wrote a proposal, and presented it to the powers that be at Pratt and was shot down, <laughs> was shot down so quickly. But having had other experiences there, I was able to connect with some really great people who worked at Pratt and they were like, no, this, this has to happen. This has to happen. And I would say right up until the day before, the night before the exhibit opened, we still weren't hundred percent sure that everything was going to be covered. Mm -hmm. And it was held at the Pratt Manhattan gallery, which had only been open for about four or five years at that time. And the average uh, population for a gallery opening at, at Pratt was about 25 to 35 people. And the Black Dress exhibit opened on the first night of Fashion Week. It was a Thursday, 2014. And we had no idea what we had done. And that opening night, we had over 500 people. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you all can, probably can't even fit in the space. <laughs> <laughs> they got in there. The fortunate thing is that the building, we had almost the whole floor. Okay. And everybody who supported the event really came through for me. And I don't, I don't just mean I had a co-curator, co uh, Paula Coleman. I had a fashion advisor, Walter Green. It wasn't just the immediate people who worked with me. It was other people at Pratt who really believed in what I was doing. So they went all out. The caterers. And my mom always said to me, wherever you go, make a friend. So even across campus, I speak 
to everybody. I speak to the security guards. I speak to the people and not just speak to them, but know them. The people who work in the cafeteria, you know, the facility staff. And, and most of these people were people of color. But, you know, they all became part of what has allowed me to stay there successfully. And they all came through for me. And even though we had order, only ordered enough food and drink for 200 people, they fed 500 people. So it was like a, a true Jesus moment. <laughs> and it made me understand that what I had done was not just important for me, but it was important for the community and not just the Black community. Because it taught, I remember we, at the front of the gallery, we had three scrolls. Due to space and budget constraints, we could only highlight 10 designers. And so we had a scroll at the front. It was three scrolls, actually. And I believe it was a total of like 107 names of designers. People would stop there on with the exhibit and take pictures of this and take pictures of it. And the biggest thing we kept hearing back from it was, I didn't know. I just didn't know that these people existed. So that's when I realized the importance of carrying on the, the work of my godmother was not just for me personally, but this, this was so much bigger than what I could have imagined. Yeah, absolutely. And as someone who has discovered quite a few people from like Black Dress TV and, you know, some of the things on the website, you know, I echo those same sentiments. Like there are a lot of people that I personally didn't know. And, you know, I read a lot, do a lot of research, but sometimes it's just not things out there that are written on us. You know, people haven't really been collecting our stories like that. So that makes spaces like Black Dress so important. And the Black Fashion Museum that like no longer exists, but, you know, have those types of things to kind of collect and archive our story. So, you know, our community knows that we exist and then other people, you know, know the work that we're doing. So that's amazing. And I thank you and appreciate you for, you know, recognizing us because we've been doing this. Right. You know, we didn't always have, and some, we still don't always have, the money to go out to the bigger stores. So we didn't start as designers. We started as tailors and dressmakers. And for the, the wealthy whites, we were the ones who were making their beautiful clothes. Right. This is something that we've, all, we've always done and, and always been a part of. We just never got the, the accolades that carried on with everybody else. And I, mm-hmm. I still say it to this day, a lot of the big brands now would not be where they are without people of color. Absolutely. I remember the first job that I worked in, all the sample hands were Hispanic, Black and Hispanic. Mm-hmm. The head pattern maker was Black. And these are the people who can make or break your business. So the fact that we weren't getting the recognition, and there had been... There had been other exhibits about Black designers, but the unfortunate thing is when that exhibit was over, the information that came with that exhibit, that ended also. Yeah. So if you were somebody that were doing the research, you would have to start all over again. Mm-hmm. So my goal is to keep this going, to keep adding to it, 
and we're in the process of the book. Oh, that's exciting. So that there, so that, and, and it will have to be volumes because You're every right. day we're finding out that there's somebody else and it's like, oh, scratch your head. We didn't know about <laughs> this. We got to put this in. The fortunate thing is that about four or five years ago, I met this amazing woman who is the fashion curator at the National Museum for African-American History and Culture in D.C. And so we've been working with them, doing research. We're about to do a symposium in October where I was one of the moderators. So, you know, we keep plugging and we're, we're getting noticed and our name is getting around. But it's just to keep keep our stories so that nobody forgets where it started and who right. we were. And that's it, guys. Thanks again for tuning into another episode of Black Fashion History. If you love what you heard, and I know that you did, make sure to follow us on all podcasting platforms and on social media at Black Fashion History Podcast. You can also find us on our website at www.blackfashionhistory.com. But of course, above all else, tune again next week for another Black Fashion History installment. Bye-bye.